Hello, it's your boy. You're listening to the Quibbler Podcast, the Harry Potter book club for mere mortals. There were once three brothers who were traveling along a lonely winding road at twilight. Midnight, our mum always told us, said Ron, who had stretched out, arms behind his head to listen. Hermione shot him a look of annoyance. Sorry, I just think it's a bit spookier if it's midnight, said Ron. Yeah, because we really need a bit more fear in our lives, said Harry before he could stop himself. I'm Heather Price Wright. And I'm Alex Dallenberg. Hello, hello. We hope you are all well and have bought a lot of rice and wet wipes in these uncertain times. We, we realized that you can wash your hands to Hedwig's theme. And that, oh, yeah. that pretty much covers 20 seconds. Yeah, if you sing the sort of familiar few measures of Hedwig's theme, ba 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 etc. take it kind of slow. You'll get you to 20 seconds. can do the 20 seconds of hand washing necessary. So whether or not you are social distancing, here's a podcast for you to listen to in our times of pestilence. This week we are reading, oh, we're still in Deathly Hallows, duh. Appropriate. Yes. Oh, rough. Sorry. Um, a dragon pox on both our houses. We are reading this week a super fun chapter, the one called The Tale of the Three Brothers. So, spoilers and cursing, you know the drill. Also, some adult themes. This week's adult themes are morality tales, true believers, childhood bedrooms, double-edged swords, double, double-edged swords, Swords? swords? Swords. I don't know how to say the word sword. <laughs> Double-edged swords. Sometimes you forget that W is in there. Swords. Well, I just, I weirdly like read it phonetically. Did you underline and emphasize the W? No, I Make just. sure you write All of a swords. sudden. My, He's got a sword. My, you fool. We've all got swords. <laughs> my mouth just forgot how to say sword. Okay, double-edged swords. And toll bridges. The sword of Gryffindor. <laughs> God. Alex, what happened in this chapter? In. Wow, I didn't say my in right. Uh, in this week's chapters, Xenophilius has just finished up with his dramatic title drop of the Deathly Hallows. He says, So you've never heard of the Deathly Hallows. I'm not surprised. There are very few believers. I'm going to explain them, but it starts with the tale of the three brothers. And I've got a copy here somewhere, but... Uh, you should have written No, this no, down. I'm fine. I'm good. I'm good. I'm just thinking... No, it's Hermione produces her copy. Yeah, but it all starts with the tale of the three brothers. And I've got a copy here somewhere. Uh, let me go find it. Hermione interrupts and says, I have a copy right here. So she reaches into her handbag and produces Tales of Beetle the Bard, which has one of the chapters is the tale of the three brothers. So what? This is so boring. What? This particular level of detail. Yeah, actually, so these recaps are, especially now that we're doing one chapter a week, the recaps are starting to approach the length of Jim Dale's actual narration of the audiobooks last week in the last episode i think we hit about 50 it was about half as long as the actual chapter oh i thought by approach you meant like within a couple of minutes no but but inching up okay 
Well, we're not helping so. by the fact that you are <laughs> describing Hermione reaching into her bag to get a book. <laughs> That's not summarizing. We Beetle. need to go back to SAT skills. Yeah, I know. Uh, <laughs> no, people fucking love these summaries. I'm just teasing you. You know this is just like part of the whole the whole shenanigan of the podcast. She grabs the Tales of Beetle the Bard out of her beetled handbag. Beetled? It's beaded handbag. Oh. Beetle. They was that call a it... joke? Yeah, it was almost a joke. <laughs> it had the cadence of a it, joke. It was like kids tell jokes, <laughs> which is the greatest twitter account on the internet you should all follow kids is it kids tell jokes or kids write jokes just look it up i think it's kids write jokes yeah, you'll find it what uh, do you call a spider in a suit what business legs <laughs> i knew the answer but it's still hilarious uh so you'll find good content like that online uh, so, <laughs> what? just you'll just find online. Good <laughs> what a weird thing to say sorry i each day, I, like, just become more of an old. <laughs> uh, you can find that and other interesting content on the internet. www.internet.it. Fuck me. Follow I us can't. on tweeters. <laughs> That's a Shit's Creek joke. Anyway, Hermione reaches in to beetle the handbag and pulls out. <laughs> That's what they should name it. Uh, and pulls out the tales of Beetle the Bard. Xenophilia says, why don't you uh, read it aloud? That's the best, that's the optimal way to experience this. So I appreciate that Xenophilius is down for story time. So Hermione reaches into her handbag. What? We are Sorry. already Fuck. past <laughs> Hermione reaching into her handbag. I'm just completely off. I, okay. We Full have disclosure, described... I Full disclosure, I didn't write down my summary for this one. And guys, I... Or take notes. I was like, Alex, do you need to write down your summary? And he was very confidently like, I have it all in my head. Because I just went on a long jog. I had, like, was listening to the audiobook. And I, I was feeling my hubris, much like the three brothers, is catching up with me. So this is a lesson we can all learn. Anyway, Hermione opens the book. Oh my her god. Handbag. Hermione opens the book, clears her throat. And starts to read. Now you're just driving me nuts. <laughs> she's, she's, she clears her throat and says, Now this is a story all about how three lives got flipped, turned upside down, and I'd like to take a minute, don't hold your breath, I'll tell you how these brothers happened on the Hallows of Death. Wow, you wrote something down. <laughs> okay, and? And then she tells the rest of the story of the three brothers. You didn't write the whole thing? No. No, that was pretty impressive though. I have done mean, more. Are you kidding me? You wrote the entirety of Can Can. I didn't. In West Godric's Hollow, born and raised, playing Quidditch is how they spent most of their days. Chilling out nights and relaxing all cool and uh, shooting some quaffles outside of the school. No, this is no good. When a guy named Death, who was up to no good, started making trouble in their neighborhood. Now I'm just, I'm literally freestyling it now. Well, no, you're just replacing one or two words with Harry Potter words. They I wouldn't call that freestyling. One little river and death got scared. He said, here's an elder one, a rock, and a cloak. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I did not do the whole Fresh Prince, but... Still, that was an impressive intro. Yeah. Okay, so what happens you. in this tale? In the tale, so there are three brothers which explains the name of the story. 
and they are traveling just around twilight. Ron interrupts and says, uh, Mom always said it was around midnight, which is spookier. Harry says, we don't need shit to be any spookier than it already is. I love that line of Harry's, actually. He's like, yeah, I need to be more scared. (laughs) Fuck off, Ron. He's like, could you please tell it? The brothers are traveling in broad daylight. Everything's fine. No, they're traveling around twilight when they reach a river. And the three brothers then have to decide whether they're going to ford the river, caulk their wagons. <laughs> I should have seen this joke coming or a mile hire away. A guide <laughs> to cross the river. No, they decide on the fourth option, which is to use magic to build a bridge. So they're halfway across the magic bridge when they see a hooded figure who is none other than but 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 motherfucking death itself. So death is pissed. Because they eluded death. Death. Yeah, they eluded <laughs> him. Oh, oh, the river was too like it was too like swift and dangerous and deep to cross. So fording the river would have been a bad idea in that case, because all their oxen would have died and they would have lost like hella pounds of sugar, two hundred pounds of food. Yeah, and like eight boxes of bullets. Um, <laughs> Is everybody old enough to play the Oregon Trail? I, I was going to say, this yeah. is like a very old millennial-specific yeah. reference. So our teen listeners, I know you're out there. Go online. <laughs> go on the internet. www.internet.org. Go to www.google.com and look up the Oregon Trail game. They know what the Oregon Trail is. I have no idea Maybe. what the teens know and don't know. Brits, the Brits I've talked to have never encountered the game, the Oregon Trail. Well, that makes so. sense because it's very specifically American. Like, why why like, would they give a fuck about hagiography? About settler colonialism. It's a game about settler colonialism. It's just like the trials and travails of Manifest Destiny, yeah. yo. That could be a good episode title, except it doesn't have to do with Harry Potter. I know. So anyway, death is like kind of pissed that they managed to cheat him and because i guess he's never heard of fucking bridges before i mean i don't know it's just a river there like this isn't this doesn't seem like a final destination situation to me where they like just like somehow managed to evade death right like they came up to the river and they just solved the fucking problem they weren't just gonna like dive in right i don't know I, I guess. Think death is death is like taking this a little too personally, given like <laughs> I think that's kind of death's like prerogative. Stakes here. So death death uh death is kind of death congratulates them, even though he's sort of being not sarcastic, what's the word for it? Death is like death kind of is laying on a little too thick. Death's like, oh nice job crossing the river, you beat me, ha ha ha. Fuck me, death be not proud, whatever. Uh <laughs> As a reward for doing such a good river crossing, uh, oh, that was a terrible sentence. As a reward for defeating me, I'm gonna give you each, I'm gonna gr- each like one cool like present that you ask for. No, uh, what basically, does he say? yeah, he says I'll give you basically whatever you want, like a wish. It's not really a wish though. It's, it's more a like present. a present. It's a gift. So the first God, you should have written this down. <laughs> so Holy first, shit! The first brother, who's combative, he's kind of an asshole. He says, "Okay, I want the most powerful wand in the world." Death says, "Dope," and like walks over to an elder tree and fashions a super powerful wand that can defeat anyone in a duel. Also, I thought it was called the Elder Wand in terms of like oh, it's the old? oldest no, wand, it's the kind but of it's tree. the kind of tree, which is interesting, and I forgot. 
Anyway, go on. I mean, Elder, that sounds kind of cool, though. Yeah. The Elder Wand. But it's not the eldest it'd lot, wand. It'd be a lot different if you'd like walked over to like a fucking maple tree or something. The maple, the maple wand. wand, also known as the death stick, we <laughs> learn later. Is it really? Yeah. Remember, people I, have also called it the death stick in like wizard lore. Way sillier than the elder wand. <laughs> Show you my death stick. Yeah. <laughs> Impale you on my death stick. Woof. Go on. The second brother who is. Very arrogant, wants to humiliate death further, so he says, All right, I want to be able to bring anyone back from the dead. So death's like, sweet. Picks up a stone, gives it to the guy, says, This stone will bring anyone back from the dead. He doesn't give him any instructions yeah, for like. The dude how. figures it out later, I guess. He I don't just, know. Just like spins it around a few times. Like a <laughs> fidget spinner of resurrection. <laughs> the resurrection spinner. Death also put in, like, way less work for this one. The first one, he has to make a whole ass fucking wand from a tree. And for the second, Hallow, he just picks up a fucking rock. And is like, oh, okay, this now, uh, this raises people from the dead. Um, the third brother is the most humble and chill of the three brothers. He's also the smartest. And he's the smartest. Because uh, that's what happens in these three. He would also build his house out of bricks, probably. Yeah, if and be the hottest. Like, if this was like a wolf situation. He's definitely not the fat one. Oh, buddy. I mean, by J.K. Rowling's estimations of what bodies mean about yeah, people's I'm surprised character. Yeah, Beetle wasn't like, the second brother was, was chonky as fuck. Fat as hell. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, just ask for a chocolate wand. Um, <laughs> so the third brother doesn't trust death. So he asks for something that will allow him to walk away without being followed by death. So death's like, oh, Fuck, I really painted myself into a corner on this one. And takes off, gives him his own cloak, which turns out to be an invisibility cloak. What's Death wearing now, though, is what I'm wondering. Like, what's what's Death look like under the hood, you know? He's just wearing, like, track pants. Does he look? <laughs> like what very... shoes is he wearing? That's also Oh my important. god, what shoes does Death wear? No, we can't go down this road again. Nike Shutterfly or whatever those fucking new badass shoes are called nike shutterfly oh i think they might be called vapor flies there's some kind of shutterfly shoe. is like isn't that that like silly like photo website oh, it might be uh vapor fly there's some kind of nike something shoe that all the runners are wearing now it's like very controversial in running world because it's like high tech and people are like, is it cheating? Is it not? So that's just maybe a that's fucking what death shoe. Is, maybe that's what death is wearing. Unless so it has like jetpacks in it, <laughs> you're fine. Well, the running world feels very seriously about the vapor flyer. Running world takes itself fairly seriously, period. So everybody leaves death and they talk about this like, they leave death at the river. The three brothers leave death at the river and talk about like what a wild adventure they just had. And uh, they go their separate ways. I don't even know where they were going to. But that's not really the point of this story. Beetle does not fill in that many extraneous details. Unlike me. <laughs> so the brother, the first brother, the Elder Wand brother, he goes to an inn that night and gets fucking drunk. And is like, everybody, I just... I met death. And he gave me a wand that could beat anyone. So... Oh, also he has a duel with somebody that, like, pisses him off and he kills him. But, so he drunkenly brags about his, like, super death stick wand. 
and says it's like bigger than everybody else's and shit like that and uh, eventually falls asleep drunk and someone at the bar who like heard it sneaks into his room at night and slits his throat and takes the elder wand so death claims the first brother bum, bum, bum. the second brother meanwhile discovers that just by turning the stone over in his hand three times probably three times uh that makes sense can he uses he can bring people back from the dead so he uses it to bring back his lost love who had recently died but she's like kind of a pale reflection of herself and she's sad because and suffers because she doesn't really belong in the world of the living so eventually so dissatisfied no not dissatisfied that's a wrong word no he's it's so just the, like bereft yeah so bereft so bereft the second brother takes his own life to join his beloved in death so death claims the second brother death looks everywhere for the third brother but can't find him because the third brother just hangs out under the cloak i guess for his whole life yeah, that seems like a kind of pale imitation of a life just to evade death. Like, you can't, like, chill with people. I mean, it's sort of metaphorical. Yeah, but, like, we're meant to understand it's extremely literal. That's <laughs> in, in, like, ten sentences. So the third brother hides from death until he he ghosts on death, basically. Ha <laughs> <laughs> in- But he doesn't actually ghost on death. He does the opposite. Um, when he's good and ready, yeah, takes well, he, off the cloak. He becomes very old. He takes off the cloak, gifts it to his son, and greets death as a friend and an equal, and they go off into the afterlife together. You know what that reminds me of? What? When the girl takes off the green ribbon at the end of that story. Oh, this is, like, much more, like, poignant, though. That story is poignant as hell! Yeah, I guess it is. She lives her whole life with her love, and he's like, why do you wear that fucking ribbon around your neck? And she's like, you'll see. (laughs) Oh, boy, you'll see. And then she's like, okay, I'm good and old. I'm going to fucking take my own head off right now. Get ready. And she does. Dang, dude. I love that story so much. I think about it like at least once a week. Quit while you're ahead. Ha ha. I should have known. I think I've used that joke before. All the jokes are just getting recycled as we... We've been doing this podcast for a long ass time. into the 90s. Yeah. The 90s of the podcast numbers, not of the decades. Not of cultural references. We're still stuck firmly in the 80s. We've always been in the 90s in terms of cultural references. I feel like it's more 80s than, well, I don't know. I actually don't know when anything came out because I don't know any of these references. (laughs) So that's the end of the story. Hermione probably closes the book and puts it back into her handbag. Um, Heather's looking at me very sternly. I don't remember the dynamics of how the the book is, like, sorted, but... I assume that worked itself out in some way or another. Xenophilius then explains what the symbol of the Deathly Hallows means. He draw, he says, so this is what the symbol means. He draws a long line. That's the wand. Then there's a circle around the line. That's the resurrection stone. And the triangle that encompasses them all, that is the cloak. So that is now just an image that is emblazoned on the backs of all of our eyelids when we think about Harry Potter and on shirts from Target yeah yeah and on shirts from Target i own one of those shirts from Target it's pretty nice yeah so anyway i want you to leave this pause in <laughs> so people understand the extent to which 
you should have written I this know. down. So Please don't edit out that pause. I'll, I'll leave it in. I'll leave it in. So anyway, Xenophilius is like, cool story, right? It's literally true. Xenophilius says, the Deathly Hallows is, we wear this sign because we're like true believers. And it's to recognize each other and help us with the quest for the Deathly Hallows. If you get all three Hallows, then you become the master of death. This is an actual thing that happened. The Deathly Hallows are real. Hermione says, that's ridiculous. This shit is like metaphorical. Ron also pipes in. He's like, yeah, isn't this like, these are like morality tales, right? They're supposed to like... They're, these are like parables. They're supposed to teach lessons. They're fables. To be fair, Ron does not use the phrase morality tales because that is not on brand for Ron. <laughs> Ron is basically like, they're supposed to teach kids shit, in it. <laughs> so Hermione's like, oh, this is like total fucking bullshit. Xenophilia says, prove it. Then they get into a debate about whether it's like possible to like disprove a negative. That Xenophilius does produce some interesting evidence for the existence of the Elder Wand. Uh, there's been, we can actually trace the path through history of the Elder Wand to a certain extent because it always passes from owner to owner in this kind of violent way. The owner of the Elder Wand, the Elder Wand only obeys whoever like is truly the master of it. So in order to get the Elder Wand, you have to overpower the ma its previous master. So various dark wizards throughout history have died like terrible deaths, and eventually the Elder Wand vanishes from the scene. Uh, he like inadvertently gives evidence for the reality of the cloak too, because he's like nobody has like a real invisibility right, cloak. Right? Yeah. He's like this is like a he's like you've heard of invisibility cloaks. This one's like perfect though. It can't be foiled in any way. Other invisibility cloaks lose some of their power or like the fucking fabric wears out. But this one is like the best. He's like less convincing on the subject of resurrection stones, but he's like, disprove it. At some point, Xenophilius leaves to go cook up some fucking freshwater plimpy soup. The trio debate the veracity of the tale of the three brothers. Harry kind of seems like he sort of believes it. Harry is like less skeptical than the other two. Hermione says at one point, it's ridiculous. Obviously you would pick, and then they all three at the same time say which of the Hallows they would pick. Hermione says the cloak. Ron says the Elder Wand. Why wouldn't you want a badass wand? Harry says the Resurrection Stone. So, yeah. So they debate the historicity of this for a few minutes. Uh, Harry notices in the room upstairs, he sees his face. It's a painting of himself that Luna made of him and Neville and Harry and Hermione and Ron and Ginny. And it's on her ceiling and they're like surrounded by these gold chains, which are actually just the words friends written over and over again. So that's pretty nice. So Harry heads up into Luna's room and he notices it doesn't seem like anyone's been living there for a while. So he's like, whoa, red flag. Xenophilius comes back. Harry's like, uh, where's Luna? Xenophilius sort of stammers and eventually the printing press like makes a loud bang and starts spitting out quibblers. And it, each quibbler has Harry's fucking face on it. And it says, undesirable number one with the ransom. So Harry's like, oh fuck, Quibbler changing its angle. 
Xenophilius reveals that the Death Eaters have taken Luna for what he was writing in favor of Harry Potter, and he needs, like, something basically to trade to get her back. So... It's a trap! It's a trap! It's a trap. So Xenophilius tries to stun the trio, but they evade it. Instead, Xenophilius' stunning spell hits the bu 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 motherfucking a rumpet horn which explodes. Totally didn't see that coming. Xenophilius' house gets fucking, like, wrecked. Eventually, the Death Eaters show up. I don't remember why Harry and Hermione, and they're, like, on a different level than Xenophilius at this point because of the whole explosion. Uh... Everything is, like, pretty messed up. There's a lot of chaos. Do you remember what happens I next? I do remember what happens next. There's a lot of chaos. The Death Eaters accuse Xenophilius of lying to them about the fact that he had Harry Potter because they don't see him. Uh, they torture Xenophilius a little bit. A little bit of light torture. Meanwhile, Harry, Hermione, and Ron debate what to do on the upstairs floor. Hermione throws the invisibility cloak over Ron, obliviates Xenophilius, who has come back upstairs. To, he tells the Death Eaters, he's like, look, Harry Potter's upstairs, let me go get him. Hermione obliviates Xenophilius, blows a hole in the floor. They fall through the ceiling. The Death Eaters see Harry, but just Harry, and then they apparate away. And that's what happens in this week's chapter. Another narrow escape. That recap might actually be as long as the chapter. It's a 32-minute chapter, and I see we're at 28 minutes, but I'm confident that with editing, we can turn it into something that resembles a, a semi-consensus. Re yeah, I think I can get it down to a minute in editing. I'm trying to imagine what that would actually sound like. We'll fix it in post. <laughs> it's interesting because the Deathly Hallows, or the sort of Tale of Beetle Bard... Beetle the Bard. Yeah. His last name's not... Bard. Beetle Bard. <laughs> that's true. The Tales of Beetle Bailey. I think that's, yeah, I'm thinking of that comic strip. Um, the Tales of Beetle the Bard and its sort of acolytes are kind of the closest we get to like a wizarding religion, almost. Or like, it's like a death cult. Those are the deathly hallows, said Xenophilius. He picked up a quill from a packed table at his elbow and pulled a torn piece of parchment from between more books. The Elder Wand, he said, and he drew a straight vertical line upon the parchment. The Resurrection Stone, he said, and he added a circle on top of the line. The Cloak of Invisibility, he finished, enclosing both line and circle in a triangle, to make the symbol that so intrigued Hermione. Together, he said, the Deathly Hallows. But... There's no mention of the words Deathly Hallows in the story, said Hermione. Well, of course not, said Xenophilius, maddeningly smug. That is a children's tale, told to amuse rather than to instruct. Those of us who understand these matters, however, recognize that the ancient story refers to three objects, or hallows, which, if united, will make the possessor master of death. Is it like a death cult, though, when they're, they're trying to, like, conquer death, though? Yeah, but I mean, they're obsessed with death. That's true. Anyway. It's not exactly a religion, I guess, because there's not, like, a deity involved, but we don't see a lot of these kind of, like, wizarding subcultures or kind of 
it just we haven't really seen a version of this before in the wizarding world except the death eaters obviously like a community of people that have sort of a shared belief system outside of kind of like wizarding mainstream or like generic sort of culturally judeo-christian with not even judeo they're not there's not like jewish traditions that show up in hogwarts they don't have a menorah that's true well also it's an example of a small community reaching for what is meant to be kind of like a metaphorical text and extrapolating literal truths from it which is sort of what I think of as a main hallmark of religion except this gets even muddier because it does turn out to be literally true but this does have a very kind of like Dan Brown vibe or like people that are really into sort of like the Knights Templar. Yeah, or the Holy Grail, or like the Arc, whole yeah. Ark, Ark of the, the Covenant. Covenant. A little Indiana Jones, too, there, which I like. I like, I don't know, the idea of the quest for this relic. I don't know. It's, I mean, it's nice and adventure I'm not going to lie. I know this is like tacky as hell, but I read The Da Vinci Code. I was in high school, and I was staying with my grandparents in Alabama for the summer because I was like hideously depressed, and like there was like, I don't know, kind of nowhere else for me to go. And it was like the first time I ever had panic attacks. So it was like a bad summer. But I don't think I went because I was depressed. But I went and I was depressed. And I read The Da Vinci Code and I fucking loved it. And I thought about Mary Magdalene every day for like a full year. So I am certainly not immune to this particular kind of what if it like Christian mysticism was super fucking real kind of story so I get it I think Xenophilius is like onto something here but it's interesting that our kind of like resident crackpot is right yeah they have kind of an interesting conversation about the nature of faith Hermione is the skeptic here as she often is and says well I'm gonna look at every rock to disprove the idea that the resurrection stone isn't a thing and Xenophilius just says, dude, you don't, that's not the fucking point, you know? Of course you can't do that. You just have to, like, know it in yeah, your heart or I'm, whatever. I'm mangling this. So, I mean, I that, it is weird, though, that it does end up being, like, completely true. Yeah, because this isn't actually, like, an examination of faith because it's, like, the questers, I, I don't know how to, I don't know, it's an interesting kind of, like, switcheroo. Because at first it feels like we're doing another one of those things where we're having a, an interesting like text within a text conversation in Harry Potter. But then it veers to this very annoying thing that Harry Potter often does, which is just be like side quest and like add some fucking objects to but, your plate. I mean, speaking of texts, so yeah, we have another one of these texts. This one is utterly telling the truth. Yeah, but... It's like sort of the most reliable document we come across. And very, very, very few people treat it as like a historical document or whatever. Yeah, I don't... Like, I don't actually have a smart thing to say about that. What I will say is it's another one of those moments in Harry Potter also where like disbelief is just as weird. Because Hermione's like, oh, well, how could there possibly be a stone that raises people from the dead? And it's like, 
There's a stone that keeps people from dying. Like, I don't understand why that's, like, much of a stretch. Also, Harry's parents literally busted out of Voldemort's wand, like, Kool-Aid man style to fucking, like, save his life. To be fair, no one was there. Yeah, but, like, Harry saw it. I assume he told Hermione and Ron, like, what the fuck happened in the graveyard. I almost guarantee you Hermione thinks that Harry was sort of, like, hallucinating and actually just, like, defeated Voldemort with, like, wit. I don't think Hermione believes Harry about a lot of the weird shit that happens to Harry. Does Hermione believe in magic? Sometimes I sort of wonder. Like, I think (laughs) Hermione kind of believes in, like, physics. And that magic is just, like, a weird way of, like, manipulating the physical world that, like, science can probably explain. Right. Like, she's actually really pedantic in a way that's very interesting for someone who has mastered actual, like, magical spells. Like, her constant inability to believe in things that are just like slightly outside of realms that she's already entered is really irritating and Xenophilius like sort of is like styled as a crackpot but also is actually like often right and well at least in this case with the deathly the existence of the deathly hallows they turn out to be real yeah And the, well, I don't know, it's interesting because, like, the films do some things that actually kind of bug me with the sort of Xenophilius and Luna belief system because there are, like, kind of visual nods to the, like, reality of their understanding of things. Like, okay, for example, like, Luna's the only person besides Harry that, like, quote-unquote believes in Thestrals. And Luna ends up being right about Thestral. So I think we actually, like, he's wrong about Crumplehorn Snorkax. But other than that, we actually get a fair number of Luna and Xenophilius's kind of, like, outside-the-norm beliefs, like, confirmed throughout these books. Mm. They're, like, kind of right more often than they're wrong. It's a little similar to Trelawney. Yeah. Spitting out, like super accurate prophecies like every now and then but it's not every now and then luna is an extremely perceptive yeah human being luna like explains death to harry and i think xenophilius is an oddball but has a sort of similar level of like extra perceptiveness yeah i'm trying to think of He's like, the Crumplehorn Snorkak is kind of the only thing where you're like, oh, you were way off base there. And again, it's only in the movies, but we are given to understand via like an interesting visual cue in the sixth movie that Nargles are real. So I don't know. I actually think... Raxperts. Raxperts, sorry. I don't know. I forget what a Nargle is. They're they're all out there. They're out here. They do. I mean, there is this sort of like recurring Hermione scene where she's like, that's impossible. And it's like... There's magic. This is just a kind of magic. How is some magic inherently more believable than others? I don't understand what you're talking about. Also, there's like a fair amount of evidence. It's interesting when he's like, oh, like, LOL, have you ever seen the like cloak of invisibility from death? And Harry is like, whoa, yeah, I absolutely have. I actually currently have it. What the fuck? (laughs) He makes the most convincing case for the Elder Wand because he can, like, kind of point to weird things throughout Well, the most history. convincing to Hermione. Right. Because Hermione is a pedant in right. a lot of ways. And he, he, like Trelawney, they do have, they're kind of twinned in a lot of interesting ways, identifies Hermione's honestly sort of greatest character flaw. She's just like, you know, Trelawney in an earlier book is like, You don't have a lot of, like, scope for the imagination, girl, (laughs) to to be Anne of Green Gables for a minute. It's also interesting because this is the first we've talked about before that wizards don't engage with any kind of, like, fiction. And this is our first 
fictional text of any sort and it's like not fiction it's not actually fiction (laughs) but does that mean the peverils actually met death like, what does that mean for, like, the reality that yeah. we live in, in this world? I don't know who world? death is, what death was. Is death, like, yeah, what is death? Like, from whom did they actually get these objects? I don't know. It's, like, freaking me out a little. Yeah, the, liter- the literalism of it is... It, like, begs a lot of questions that super don't get answered. Which is, I don't know, I kind of like that, in a way. I mean, I sort of like that, but I also, the thing about making the metaphorical real is that... You sort of, you can't do that forever. Right. Like you stretch farther and farther and farther into unreality and then you sort of have to choose like an arbitrary stopping point. I mean, maybe these- Like I think the Bible is, well, I shouldn't say that, but like religion is another good example of like it, it becomes like increasingly screwy to say that like all of the things in religious texts are literally true because lots of them are like either contradictory or impossible sort of within the realm of just like linear time. So the more you try to literalize like texts that are primarily meant to instruct, the more you just like come up against like unreality. Right. Like we have like an inkling maybe that in some fashion the events in the Iliad, that like the Trojan War or some conflict maybe happened, but... It didn't happen that way. Well, I think it happened. But, it, like, Aphrodite didn't, like, right, fucking yeah. show up and, like, but protect like, Hector or whatever. I don't know. It's interesting because, like, that's not, that's, like, a weird thing to ask of, like, the Iliad or whatever. Like, it doesn't really fucking matter. If it's literally true. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I just, it almost is true by virtue of it being this foundational text. So it's, it's kind of, so it's kind of weird that this really important, what everyone understands to be a metaphorical text does turn out to be like historically accurate unless the hallows were somehow made and this like mythology got built around them i think that's that's probably more i think that's more likely true not like death's an actual dude no that the hallows all existed and for some reason this like family like this very powerful family came into possession of these like three particularly potent magical objects yeah and then a mythology around the family sort of like sprang up so it's kind of a chicken or an egg question but i'm assuming like the folk tale kind of is based on this like real wizarding family with like this crazy collection of shit as opposed to like death actually gave it to them but i don't know i just like have questions about like what she's doing here in some ways, she's, like, dismantling the whole idea of, like, metaphor being useful. Because she's like, it's real! And also, I just, I can't with these fucking objects. <laughs> we gotta look for horcruxes. We gotta look for hallows. Horcruxes aren't hallows, but, like, some of the hallows might be horcruxes. It's just, like, honestly, it's fucking exhausting. I'm exhausted by this, like, whole set of, like, sub-sub-sub-quests. <laughs> it's like, hey, Harry... I heard you liked quests. (laughs) So here's another quest you can do while you're on your main quest. It's not even a sub-quest. I don't know. But it's not the main quest. Like, it's like Dumbledore was like, maybe you should do this. But, like, I'm going to, like, bury the fact that the Hallows are, like, kind of the main thread. Like, super deep in these confusing. Like, what the fuck was Dumbledore doing? Dumbledore was wasted. (laughs) I do, in a previous chapter, there's a great moment where Ron says... When I'm feeling sort of, like, pissed off, I think to myself, is Dumbledore just fucking with us? The answer is yes. Yeah, Dumbledore is 100% fucking with you, because even in death, he lives for chaos. 
Also, it's fucking weird. I do love that about Dumbledore, actually. That's the one thing I really do enjoy about him, is his taste for just, like, utter, like, rampant nonsense. It's weird that James Potter just has a hallow, also. Like, I know there's a reason for that. They're, like, related to them, but blah, blah, blah. But, like, he's just, he's got a fucking deathly hallow, and he, like, primarily uses it to, like, fuck with Snape. (laughs) Like, that's... That's feels the blindsidedness like, of youth. That also just feels like the epitome of James Potter's character. I have one third of the answer to mortality, and I'm gonna play hilarious pranks with it. His like full and entire dedication to fucking around <laughs> is infuriating and kind of endearing. We do learn, I mean, not it's like kind of obvious, but of course there are some sort of interesting elements of how each of the trio picks a different hallow and I guess we're supposed to kind of understand it as the trio completes each other with the way the hallows do. I think you're right, she told him. It's just a morality tale. It's obvious which gift is best, which one you'd choose. The three of them spoke at the same time. Hermione said, the cloak. Ron said, the wand. And Harry said, the stone. They looked at each other, half surprised half amused. You're supposed to say the cloak, Ron told Hermione, but you wouldn't need to be invisible if you had the wand. An unbeatable wand, Hermione. Come on. We've already got an invisibility cloak, said Harry. And it's helped us rather a lot, in case you hadn't noticed, said Hermione, whereas the wand would be bound to attract trouble. Only if you shouted about it, argued Ron. Only if you were prat enough to go dancing around, waving it over your head, and singing, I've got an unbeatable one, come and have a go if you think you're hard enough. I don't know if that's interesting, really, because it it does feel sort of obvious, but, I mean, they pick the ones you'd guess. Ron is a dumbass. Ron wants the biggest penis. He just wants a dick. Yeah. Like, Ron just wants a big ol' swinging dick. And Harry's like, well, everyone I know is dead. So <laughs> it's weird when they're like, why would why would you pick the stone? Harry's like, uh, I'm I, Harry Potter. I have a lot of death around me. Yeah. And to be fair, both of them are like, Ooh. <laughs> there's this moment they're like kind of pulling on their collars. <laughs> and Hermione like chooses the right answer in a very annoying Hermione way. She's like, obviously the cloak. And it's like, OK, like you you get an A, but like it's annoying that you knew you were going to get an A because like that's the right answer. So which hallow would you pick? A kind of a hallmark of my personality is this like extremely delicate balance between extreme ambition and like a pretty deep fear of actual power. So I don't think I want any of this shit. I think I wanted to stay very far away from me, in fact. Okay, but what if you had to pick one? What if death's like at the riverbanks, like God choose? I mean, frankly, I jump in the river. Wow. I mean, whatever. He's offering this shit for free, man. Well, not really. (laughs) It's like really deeply not for free. There's some Faustian shit going on here. I guess the cloak, just because it's the most like neutral object. I don't want to fight anyone at all, really. The Elder Wand has like holds literally zero interest for me. I actually think the like diametric opposite feelings I have about the wand say a lot about why I think Ron is such an idiot. Mm, I would pick the stone. Really? Yes. Huh. But it's, they don't want to be back. 
if you could bring back and then it seems like they don't have to be back permanent you can send people back yeah but you're like harming them oh well i would only use it for like historical research oh my god i would you just be like, like talk to george like, washington thomas jefferson okay i've got all the founding fathers back what do you actually think about this but that's what i would do with the resurrection stone you, you you're like retroactively harming people it's like okay if it's the founding fathers. I think the thing that's fucked up about the stone is you're like, you know what it's like? It's like waking someone up. Yeah. That is one of the rudest things that a person can do is just like for no reason, like wake someone up from a deep sleep. Well, maybe I'd want the wand then. I don't know. You should obviously want the cloak. The cloak would be dope. The cloak is just like, I can go about my fucking business and die when I want to die, and just, like, show up and be like, what up, death? We're bros now. So... I can't imagine wanting the wand. The wand is just inscrutable to me. Also, you end up... You end up dying violently. Yeah. Because, like, investing primarily in violence means that violence befalls you, which is the fucking lesson of this story. Yeah. And the stone I sort of get, but also it's like selfish in a way. And Harry sort of realizes in the moment when he finds the stone, because like, spoiler alert, I just remembered it's inside of the snitch. He's like, oh, I don't, like, you guys should go, like, home. Yeah. Like, this is actually really, like, sad and weird. I mean, whatever. I'm with Hermione and that the cloak seems like the only answer, but... That I think has a lot to do with my personality. Really? The stone? I think so. Yeah. That's interesting. It's the most interesting of the objects to me. I know, but it harms other people. Mm. But dead ones. Yeah, but that's even worse. Yeah, I guess. I they're guess like you're right. resting, they're like, finally. And then they're like, what the fuck? I they're gotta... like, I don't want to do this right now. <laughs> I had to go through dying. Solve your own like, problems. Leave me the fuck yeah. alone. Now you're right. Okay. I mean, no. I, I actually, wouldn't I use do... the resurrection stone to troll the dead. I do but... get it. I get it. The wand, I don't get it all. Well, I mean, do we like the tale of the three brothers and how it fits into this story? I think I do, even though despite some of our, like, confusion by it and, like, our frustration with another set of quests, I think it plays a really important thematic role. I will say this actually is one of my favorite chapters. It's a lovely chapter. It it is a lovely chapter. It is a really satisfying addition to the kind of internal mythos of these books. Yeah, I was going to use the same phrasing it, it deepens the mythos anytime you can add that like extra level of mythology yeah it's a it's a fun sort of world building and it also i mean it helps us understand the kinds of morality lessons like wizarding children grow up with interestingly so i remember very vividly when i was in i guess my sophomore year of college and we read the canterbury tales in Middle English, actually. I can still... Re- I think I've done this on you the podcast. Yeah, have done this on yeah. the podcast, 100%. So, because that's one of my, like, weird little claims to fame. It's your party trick. It is kind of my party trick. I also recite it when I'm doing a very hard exercise. Always. To this day. <laughs> like, if I'm doing a plank, or if I'm, like, doing, like, a sprint in, like, a spin class, I say the Canterbury Tales in my head because it's, like, a very specific, useful thing to focus on. Oh, well, now you can do it for washing your hands. Oh my god! No, I think it's like Wait, it's a, yeah. it's like forty five okay. seconds well, to a go. minute because I usually part. have to do it like twice in a plank. Mm. 
anyway, so I was, I remember reading the Canterbury Tales and getting to the Pardoner's Tale and being like, holy shit, this is in Harry Potter. <laughs> uh, which is really nerdy. Did Beetle the Bard just plagiarize Chaucer? Well, it's a slightly different story, but it's, I mean, it's one of the moments of like, extreme clarity in terms of where J.K. Rowling's literary influences lie. I mean, obviously there are lots and lots and lots of things that come from like Tolkien and just like sort of general fantasy tropes, but The Tale of Three Brothers is extremely similar to The Pardoner's Tale in Chaucer, Mm. except, so The Pardoner's Tale, first of all, The Pardoner is a really interesting character because he sells indulgences so like the idea of like the pardoner is actually very it's like very of Chaucer's time it's sort of satirical because he's set up as this like very pious figure but he's actually like a seller of indulgences and like a true shitbird so they like don't want him to be allowed to tell a tale because his whole thing is that he tells stories from the pulpit that cause people to like repent and then like buy indulgences from him like he's like silver-tongued I don't know if this is interesting at all but I just like remember the partner's tale like relatively vividly anyway so he tells the story and it's three brothers and they're all like super bad dudes like none of them are chill at all there's no like youngest brother character and they're all sort of like bandits and like ne'er-do-wells and drunks and they're like walking down the road and they see that one of their like drinking buddies is dead he's like being like carried in his coffin to like his grave or whatever anyway they see their like dead friend and they're like we want to fuck up death like we want to beat him up in his face so they like go looking for death and this old man is like oh death's over there by that tree spoiler alert that old man is death (laughs) um so they go to the tree and instead of death they like find all this gold and they're like ah dope there's like hella gold here but they don't want to like walk away with the gold in broad daylight because like everybody already knows they're like bad dudes so they have to like wait till it's dark so two of the brothers are like chill okay we're gonna wait here and guard the gold and you're gonna go get snacks (laughs) they tell the youngest brother so he like pieces out to get snacks and the two other brothers are like okay when he comes back we're definitely gonna murder him so that we split the gold. Meanwhile, the other brother who went to get snacks poisons them. He poisons their wine because he's like, I'm going to kill both of them and then I'm going to take all the gold. And so what happens is he gets back, they kill him, and then they both drink the wine to celebrate and they die. And death wins, basically. And greed is bad. So really, really similar, except that the brothers sort of kill each other, but death like tricks them through their own hubris into killing each other. But like, right? It's yeah, like, that's similar. It's a very similar story. Yeah. All of that is just to say, hey, this is basically the partner's tale. I don't really have a point. I also <laughs> just really like the partner's tale. I also really like the Canterbury Tales. We should so. put spoilers for Chaucer at the beginning of this episode. I mean, but, it's a frame yeah. story. So these are just like, they're like shooting the shit on the way to see on the Tip Real Winter Shirt. They're going to Canterbury. They're on pilgrimage. Yeah, they're going to see the Bishop of Canterbury to like cure their ills. Yeah. Yeah, that's why it's called the Canterbury Tales. Okay, anyway, sorry. Maybe you can cut that out. I think it's interesting. Do you know that Chaucer did like a blooper reel? And? Called the Canterbury Fails. I hate you. <laughs> like, deeply. No, I love you very much. <laughs> the cut, the cut scenes. So, okay. So, <laughs> I guess what the transition we can do from me just telling you guys the partner's tale is that... What is the moral of the tale of the three brothers? Because, like, the moral of the partner's tale is very obviously, like, greed will kill you. Yeah. 
but what do we feel like the moral here is? Because it's not really about greed. I think it underscores the broader theme of all seven books, which is, I don't know a better way to say this, but death is inevitable and it's about the acceptance of death. The only thing you have control over is how you meet death in the end. Yeah, you can't cheat it. Like You, you don't get to avoid or yeah. get away from it. But you can meet death on your terms by, I guess, living a... I mean, by accepting it. Yeah, by, accept, by accepting the reality of it. Harry's great, singular, and beautiful triumph in these books is accepting his own death. And that's how he wins. Yeah, that is weirdly how he overcomes it, which is exactly the same thing as the final brother. Weirdly through a loophole, he lives. So I don't know if that undercuts it a bit, but he does die eventually. I mean, he lives, but he doesn't become immortal. Right. And that's the thing, because the two other brothers want to conquer death. Right. And the third brother is like, I'm chill with dying. I would just like to make some decisions about my life in the meantime. Right. So the thing is, like, when you assemble the Hallows... Do you actually conquer death? Like I, this. Well, Harry, Harry it again, like yeah, kind of, that's interesting. Because Harry does assemble the Hallows. When I first read the book, I'm like, oh, this is the way Harry like survives or whatever. I think it's actually ultimately. I think the Hallows are a red herring because I think the. Okay, so let me see if I can like follow my own logic chain here. So she sort of pulls like a double switch because it's like, okay, this is a morality tale. But like psych, it's real and these objects are real and you can collect them and conquer death. But psych, you can't actually conquer death. And the main point of the story is actually just the moral of the story, which is you can't conquer death. Hmm, that is interesting. So you okay. kind of get to the so end and you're like, bit more oh, now. the Hallows don't actually give you the ability to live forever. What happens when Harry collects the Hallows is actually just the acceptance of mortality, which is, like you said, I think... We talked about this in an earlier episode, but, like, these books aren't about, like, fucking, like, love or, like, tolerance. These books are fundamentally about death. Yeah, they're about the fact that you and everyone you love will die. And that's something you have to, like, figure out how to live with or else be in sort of, like, constant torment. Yeah, or you become Voldemort. Who is in constant torment. Right. And wow. you get into, like, very extreme body mod. Yeah. The Hollow's the Quest, then, it's, a, it's not actually about becoming master of death or maybe it is no it's but not you've... but that's the whole point of this book is none of the yeah. quests are not about you've mastered death like metaphorically yeah none of the quests are like all of the quests do sort of become metaphorical or they kind of go like they like invert back into their own metaphors it's very tricky and it's sort of like in some ways it's tricky because it's very intricately written in some ways, it's tricky because it's, like, full of holes and, like, loses <laughs> threads. But I think the thing that has been the most rewarding for me, honestly, on an adult reread is realizing that the deep sort of, like, glowing core of Harry Potter is just accepting your own mortality and living a life that acknowledges that it will end and that's okay. That's that's deep stuff. That's for, a very intense message for, any, for a children's for book. For anyone, much less uh, kids. But I mean, whatever. You have to learn. It's something you learn from a relatively young age. I mean, most people do. Yeah. The other thing is, one of the things Harry learns the most acutely is like, people die at like super fucking inopportune times. Like, you're very unlikely to get to kind of like choose your moment and like go out on your terms. Like, 
Harry often has the very painful experience of having someone die in the middle of a conflict and he doesn't get to sort of do his like summation of the relationship or like die you know they don't die in a time when he feels like there's been closure because death very rarely invites closure I don't know it's heavy but it's important it's my favorite thing about these books as we're rereading right I'm just like her preoccupation with death is actually very satisfying yeah and I yeah I think this really deepens those themes in powerful ways totally we should talk a little bit about Xenophilius, who I think we're pretty hard on. Yeah, we were maybe too hard on him. Xenophilius licked his lips. They took my Luna, he whispered, because of what I've been writing. They took my Luna, and I don't know where she is, what they've done to her. But they might give her back to me if I... if I... Hand over, Harry, Hermione finished for him. No deal, said Ron flatly. Get out of the way. We're leaving. Xenophilius looked ghastly, a century old, his lips drawn back into a dreadful leer. They will be here at any moment. I must save Luna. I cannot lose Luna. You must not leave. He spread his arms in front of the staircase, and Harry had a sudden vision of his mother doing the same thing in front of his crib. He's not actually at all a bad dude he's reacting very rationally to a horrible situation that I think most people would probably do something similar in his shoes frankly yeah yeah uh not everyone is cut out to be a martyr just Harry Potter sort of yeah nor should everyone even be expected to be a martyr and the thing about Harry the only way he can really get to the point where he's like cut out to be a martyr is for is for like everything else he sort of like needs and clings to and wants in the world to be stripped away. So he's like, all right, I guess I literally have nothing to fucking lose except for Ron. And Ginny. Okay, yeah. And Hermione. You know what I mean. Like his friends, sure, but Harry has to have a lot taken away from him before he gets to the point where where martyrdom is like a going concern. Yeah, but it's deeply fucked up that Xenophilius having lost his wife at a young age, now might lose his daughter. And Xenophilius was very brave for a long time, and it took the sort of utmost horror in his life for him to kind of, like, cave. Right. Yeah, there's this interesting moment where he's trying to block them from escaping, and Harry's reminded of his mother trying to block the door from Voldemort. That is a beautiful moment. Yeah? That moment, that, like, hit me in my heart. Because Harry also, that is a moment where Harry demonstrates really an immense capacity for empathy. Because Xenophilius is doing what his mother was doing, which was protecting which was protecting his child at all costs. Yeah. I think Xenophilius is acting in many ways extremely ethically here. It underscores the fact that in wartime it becomes very difficult to make moral decisions. There's no Xenophilius there's no right choice Xenophilius can make here. Either he lets his daughter die or he turns over the last hope of the resistance. Like, what's he supposed to do here? Like, it's not right to do nothing about Luna, right? Or I guess maybe if he was, like, a true, like, extreme, like, 100,000% wizard patriot, maybe he would be like, fuck it. Well, yeah, but I just think that that's not necessarily more ethical right it's like a question of whether our own the preservation of those we 
directly and immediately love and need and care for is more important than a sort of more nebulous greater good and I think probably a lot of people will disagree with me about those being sort of equal but I certainly cannot say that I would make a decision different from Xenophilius Lovegood in this circumstance. Yeah. I don't think self-preservation is evil or selfish. I think it makes a lot of sense. I mean, Xenophilius has proven himself to be primarily on the side of justice and good. And yes, he has to be backed into a truly impossible position The other thing is, I feel like it's fairly clear that he actually would probably sacrifice his own life for this particular cause, just not Luna's. Yeah. And I think everybody has something they can't lose, you know? Yeah. The thing about Harry is, like, you got to get rid of all the things Harry can't lose before he's like, okay, chill, like, let's have Voldemort kill me. Right. So I, I feel a lot of empathy and pathos for Xenophilius in this moment. And I definitely don't. I certainly can't say with any confidence like what I would do in his place. And the thing about these sorts of regimes living under this kind of evil is it actually does, I think the most insidious and cruel thing it does is like strip away people's access to their best selves. Hmm. Like it's impossible to behave morally in like a system this immoral. Maybe people just, I mean that might be sort of like a debate for philosophy like I'm sure there are people that think that there is a higher and specific and precise morality under all circumstances I don't actually believe that philosophically I don't think there is a perfect morality so yeah I mean this chapter gets like philosophical (laughs) this fucking horn obviously this thing was gonna fucking explode It's the most obvious device in J.K. Rowling's obvious device pantheon thank god he bought that horn though right like yeah, I guess. Where else would they, where would they be at this point without that erumpent that gave his life? R.I.P. erumpent. I know, buddy. I continue to pour one out for that guy. Um, Maybe he just lost his horn and he didn't die. No, Maybe he Maybe he's somewhere died. out there with no horn. No, that's sad too. Poor erumpent. Hermione's last act, this, we ragged on Hermione a little bit this episode, which is like rare, but she did super bug me. But this is so... This is like the perfect Hermione Venn diagram center of like clever and beautifully kind where she's like, okay, we're going to do this extremely like fabulous like emergency ballet of falling through the ceiling, whizzing past the Death Eaters, letting them glimpse Harry's face and then immediately apparating. Like it's like chef's kiss. (laughs) And she does it for such a good reason. Well executed too, yeah. Oh my god. Yeah, she's a pedant, but I trust her with my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's really kind of her to, in that moment, I mean, it's another it's another thing, like, in Bethilda, where in these moments of panic, not only, like, Hermione can play, like, three-dimensional chess. No, chess is three-dimensional. What is it, seven-dimensional <laughs> chess? Everybody plays three-dimensional chess. Uh yeah, like 10-dimensional ten chess, ten dimensional chess or whatever, where not only can she sort of solve the problem at hand, but she can solve it with like multiple like flourishes that go above and beyond, such as saving Xenophilius Lovegood via making sure the Death Eaters know Harry was actually there. Although I think Xenophilius might die anyway. I don't remember. I hope not, but I don't remember either. It's very sad. Who's your unsung hero? My unsung hero is Beetle the Bard, the un sung fifth beetle um, oh my god 
I want to know more about this guy. Yeah, probably there's a fucking Pottermore. It's not even Pottermore anymore. It's like Wizarding World trademark dot com whatever it's in pottermore no they changed it to wizarding world oh my god so branded mm-hmm. because Ugh. now it, it's more than harry potter it's fantastic beasts Boo. it's some other fucking shit Boo. Uh, uh who was beetle he's this folklorist i kind of assumed he was this nebulous maybe a historical figure maybe not like an like a know. homer or in like yeah an or, Ovid? Like, or like well, we know Ovid's real. I guess we do. Or like, is Aesop a real guy? Aesop? Aesop? I don't actually know. I don't... Probably. I'm going to have to look that up online. www.aesop.gov. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but maybe... Was Beetle a real historical personage? Uh, who was this guy? How did he get the tale of the three brothers? Did he hear about it? Did he interview Ignotus Peverell? Did he interview Death? <laughs> I want to know his, like, sourcing. Death comes for Beetle the Bard. <laughs> but otherwise, it's a pretty cracking tale, so it I is. like it. Beetle the Bard might just be Chaucer. Yeah, it's possible. Dude, Chaucer was a wizard. Probably Chaucer was a wizard. Yeah. I think Shakespeare might have been a wizard, too. Highly likely. He's British, after all. That's true. And Most like, of Britain is highest... in the Harry Potter <laughs> movies, so... <laughs> highest per capita wizards what in the world. What were we watching recently? Oh my god, the, like... Google autocomplete interview. Oh, on Wired. Yeah. With Patrick Stewart. Patrick Stewart. And one of them is, was Patrick Stewart and Harry Potter? And you can tell he's like a little bit genuinely pissed off by that question. Yeah, he says no, but everybody else I know was in Harry Potter. Nobody ever asked me. Except for Sir Ian McKellen. Patrick Stewart would have been amazing in Harry Potter. Who would he have played? I don't know. One of the bald ones. <laughs> Who's bald? I don't remember off the top of my head. He would head. have been a fun Death Eater. Oh, little like, casting of him a bad guy. I mean, he's a bad guy in Dr. X's School for Monsters. No, that's Ian McKellen, Pro- Patrick Stewart's Professor X. Wait, who's Ian McKellen, the bad guy? He's Magneto. Oh my god, I absolutely thought it was the other way around. No, I thought Ian McKellen Patrick was Stewart Mr. Pro- X. No, it's Professor X. I thought I thought that was Mr. X. It's Professor X. And I thought it's Professor the X. bald guy was the bad guy. Patrick Heather Stewart. does this thing to troll me where, where she I calls, call it Mr. X a school for monsters. She calls Professor Charles Xavier school for the gifted, the school for monsters. They're not monsters. Mr. X a school for monsters. He's a professor. From what university? I believe Columbia, but I could be wrong. You're making Professor that up. X. Professor Xavier is a professor. It's a school for the gifted. You were showing anti-mutant bigotry. Mostly, you get so mad, and it's so funny when I call it Mr. X's School for Monsters. <laughs> um, anyway, Patrick Stewart. He could have been somebody in Harry Potter. Uh, wouldn't he have been a fun Death Eater? Yeah, but Death Eaters don't get that many lines. I know. Well, this one could. They could make one that's just Patrick Stewart chewing scenery. He could have. He would have been a good Mad-Eye Moody, maybe. No. No. The, the casting for Mad-Eye. The thing is, like, the He's casting not too, yeah, maybe not is, moody. like, that's really stupid... glorious. <sighs> I don't know who Patrick Stewart would have been. Damn it. Okay, well, send us your ideas, quibblerpodcast at gmail.com or at quibblerpodcast across the socials. <laughs> My unsung hero is Luna Lovegood. This bedroom is like the perfect Luna combination of like a little bit eerie, but like very, very sweet. She painted all her friends on the ceiling. That's nice. And then she wrote friends around their heads because she's a very literal person. <laughs> she's also apparently a really good artist. Yeah. Harry um, first thinks he's, like, looking in a mirror. Yeah, I mean, she's an extraordinary artist. We don't actually get a lot of artistically talented characters. I want 
more Luna. I want more love good lore in these books because this is the first time I think we've actually encountered somebody like making art in any meaningful way. Yeah, I guess you're right. So it's a nice little thing to learn about Luna, but we don't get to explore it very much. But bless her heart. I'm worried about her, but she's going to be fine. Her love is good. Ha ha. This week's episode is brought to you by Gertie Root Infusions. It's the new kombucha. The audiobook clips that you heard are courtesy of Penguin Random House Audio. They are from Jim Dale's performance of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. We learned what those are this week. As previously stated, you can email us at quibblerpodcast at gmail.com. Find us on social media at quibblerpodcast is our handle in various places. You can rate, review, subscribe. You know the drill. Find us where you find us. Subscribe because our publishing schedule is wildly erratic. I think that's probably the best reason to do so. And you can sign up for our newsletter, which is infrequent but funny. That is tinyletter.com slash quibblerpodcast. We sent one out last week. Yeah, we're out here in the world. It's a thing. Doing our thing. And next time, we will be reading the chapter called The Deathly Hallows. I think I've heard of them. Look at that. So talk to you then. Thanks. Amigos. When you say master of death, said Ron. Master, said Xenophilius, waving an airy hand. Conqueror, vanquisher, whichever term you prefer. No, you see, that's just a myth. Yeah, but she's my myth. No, no, myth, myth. Yes. What the hell? Was Patrick Stewart in Harry Potter? That's such an unkind question. No, I was not in Harry Potter. I wasn't even asked to be in Harry Potter so that I could arrogantly turn it down. But every other actor that I know and that I'm close to was in Harry Potter, except Sir Ian McKellen. That's what's made us famous that we weren't in Harry Potter.